pray together. God, we, we still ourselves and silence ourselves, God. In, in thankfulness and in gratefulness that by the coming of Your Son we can sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." He has no rival, no equal. Right now and forever, He reigns alongside you at your right hand, Lord. His name is beautiful and wonderful and powerful. God, and because of Him, we can declare, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust You. We can declare the, the wonders of the ways that He has proved Himself over and over and over in our lives. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, by grace, Lord, would we learn to trust Him more to adore Him more, to love Him more, to look to Him more, to rely upon Him more. Day by day, would Your Spirit teach us how to do those things, Lord, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As you get yourself uh, seated and situated, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. And I want you to open to two, two different places today. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to pick up there in verses 1 to 10 and, and continue working our way through the book of Hebrews. But then in order to do that well this morning, you're also going to need to open up to Genesis chapter 14. And so if you want to sort of stick... Uh, the uh, bookmark or your bulletin or the ribbon in your Bible or just your finger into Genesis 14. We'll, we'll start in Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 10 and then we'll flip back and we'll kind of go back and forth a couple times there. By way of just setting up how this is going to go this morning, uh, what we're going to do is that we're going to look at and reflect on the first 10 verses of, the, of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. What does it say? What is it showing us? Then we're going to sort of, sort of shift our focus and think about, reflect on the birth of Jesus. How are these things related? And then we'll finish by spending a few moments reflecting on what this means for us today and how it is that uh, Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 to 10, the birth of Jesus, how they intersect and how they should force us into some very specific kind of reflecting in our own hearts. And so that's where we're headed. What we're going to see this morning is that two unexpected things are smashed together. A very obscure Old Testament figure, one that did not make, you know, the flannel board in your Sunday school room. It, he did not make the children's Bible that you grew up reading. He maybe only even ever got a passing reference in uh, a church service that you were a part of unless you were looking at Hebrews chapter 7. Take that individual and then 
push him together with the centerpiece of all of the Bible, with Jesus. That's what this passage is doing. Melchizedek, shadowy Old Testament figure, and Jesus, centerpiece of all of the biblical narrative, centerpiece of all human history, centerpiece of eternity. How do those things come together? That sort of motif of taking two things that appear very different and then bringing them together is actually a very common uh, theme in like movies and stories or books. Think Romeo and Juliet, rival gangs come together. Think Maria and Bernardo from West Side Story, same thing. Think Lady and the Tramp, that, that would be my preferred one. Ritz, or ritzy, wealthy uh, owner of a dog ends up out on the streets and runs into a mutt. They end up, you know, kissing as far as dogs are concerned over a plate of spaghetti, right? <laughs> Unexpected things brought together outside of the realm of movies. Pineapple and pizza. You people that like that abomination. Every once in a while, my wife will try to convince me that, like, cheese goes with apples. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Cheese goes with savory things, and apples go with apples or caramel dip. (laughs) If you're more of a music person, think this is the kind of surprising smashing together that you would get if, like, Taylor Swift and Kanye West buried the hatchet and decided that they were going to do a music collaboration together. Unexpected things drawn together for the point of illustrating a larger purpose. Obscure Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, and Jesus Christ, son of the Son of the Trinity, God incarnate. This is, this uh, Hebrews chapter 7 is dedicated to that topic, and we're going to use this over our next three times together, this morning, next Sunday, and then Christmas Eve. And if you've been with us for a year and you're thinking, gee, Last Christmas, he made us do the genealogy of Jesus all the way up to Christmas Eve. This Christmas, he's making us do Melchizedek. He is a nerd. <laughs> you're, you're partially correct. Um, I am making you do those things. Whether or not I'm a nerd is up for debate. But let me give you a brief explanation as to why this both fits for us over the next three times that we're together and also why it is that I would be excited about it. Everything in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, points to Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, culminates in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews states that there is something about understanding the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus that is a mark of spiritual maturity. In fact, it was in chapter 5 where he first introduced Melchizedek, and then he stopped, and he said, I have a lot more to say about this, but you're too immature to understand. You're too lazy to get it. And so I can't go forward. And then he gives them this warning about their immaturity and their laziness and the fact that it might point to the reality that they've not ever actually been saved and experienced God's grace. And then in chapter seven, he launches back into the discussion about Melchizedek. As your pastor, uh, I'm gonna stand before the Lord one day for how I shepherded the flock and far be it from me if any of y'all are gonna show up there and not understand Jesus and Melchizedek, all right? A mark of maturity. I'm gonna say, Lord, I may have gotten a lot of things wrong, but they understood that because I made them do it at Christmas when I was confident they would all be there. 
I love the chance to display how all of Scripture is about Jesus, regardless of where it's positioned in the biblical canon. Old Testament narratives point to Jesus. New Testament epistles point to Jesus. Gospels, Jesus. Old Testament wisdom literature, Jesus. Old Testament prophetic literature, Jesus. The book of Revelation about Jesus. This section of Hebrews links together an Old Testament event, one that can be a little confusing and certainly isn't the best known with the very person of Jesus. This discussion about the arrival and the work of Melchizedek gives us a perfect opportunity to talk about the arrival and the work of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do the next three times we're together. Two surprising things coming together. An Old Testament shadowy figure and the centerpiece of the biblical narrative. We're going to engage with that as we anticipate and celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you would, turn with me. Let's read Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 10 together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, or the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Two things that I want to have guide our conversation about this over the next three times we are together. And I, I want to repeat them a lot so we keep them at the forefront of our minds. Number one, the point is to understand Jesus, not to understand Melchizedek. That is the author's intent, that we would understand something about Jesus, not that we would understand all the ins and outs of this guy, Melchizedek. And then the second is that Melchizedek is like Jesus, not vice versa. It's not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. We just saying that. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. It's that Melchizedek is like Jesus. There's a difference between those two things, and I'll explain that a little more as we go. It'll be helpful for us as we begin this discussion if we go back to the book of Genesis and read the account in Genesis 14, all of the press that Melchizedek gets in the book of Genesis. For some context while you flip to there. Abraham's nephew Lot has just been carried away from Sodom by four Canaanite kings who moved in and attacked the area. Undaunted by that, Abraham rallies up 318 trained men from his household and takes off in pursuit of the kings in order to get his nephew and some other people and all of their plunder back. Near the city of Damascus, Abraham and his men catch up to the kings and launch an attack under the cover of darkness. And in Genesis 14, verse 16, we're told that Abraham brought back all of the stolen possessions, all of the kidnapped people, and his nephew Lot. In that moment, 
Abraham is riding an absolute high. In chapter 12, he was just informed by the Lord that he would be blessed in order to be a blessing to all of the nations. He knows that that is what his future entails. He doesn't know all the details of that, but he knows that that's a promise from God and he trusts it and he believes it. He's just had a huge military success over four very powerful kings. And he's riding back, I don't know if he's on a camel or something, reveling in all of the success, all of the plunder, all of the promises, all of the people back, his nephew safe and sound, and he's met by this man named Melchizedek. Follow along with me, Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Chedi, that's a hard name, so I shortened it, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, son of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abraham is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, who, uh, blessed be, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Melchizedek's name is mentioned two times in the Old Testament, once in Genesis chapter 14 and one time in Psalm 110. Three verses in Genesis chapter 14, two verses in Psalm 110, and then his name is mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. Old Testament figure, very little mention of in the Old Testament, becomes one of the central figures in the book of Hebrews. What's going on with that? The author of Hebrews is bringing these two things together for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to help us love and adore Jesus, not to be informed about Melchizedek. In order to do so, he also shows how in the person of Melchizedek, some surprising things are brought together. So flip back to Hebrews chapter 7. Look with me in verse 1. The first surprising thing that's brought together is the kinghood and the priesthood. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, Salem, that's Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. He's the king of that city, the city of David, the city where the temple would one day eventually be set up. But at this point, the temple is not even a distant thought in anyone's mind. He's the king there, but he's also priest of God most high. That combination was not something that a person could hold within Jewish law. In fact, there were dire consequences if the king tried to act as the priest. You could not do that. It came with your death. And yet, here in Melchizedek, we see someone holding both the kinghood and the priesthood. As a note, no one else in all of the Bible holds that role except Jesus. No one else is both king and priest except Jesus and Melchizedek. Seeing those two things together would have caused a Jewish reader to say one of two things. Impossible! That was number one, with a sense of incredulity. How is this even possible? You can't bring those two things together. Or number two, they would have said, this person clearly is not one of us and therefore has nothing to say to us. The author of Hebrews is about to show that it is totally possible and it has much to say. Number two, peace and righteousness. Melchizedek's name is a combination of two Hebrew words, Melech. M-L-K, meaning king, 
and uh, Sadek, or ZDK, meaning righteousness. When a Hebrew-speaking individual heard the name Melchizedek, they would have heard those two words put together, king, righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. Hebrews 7 verse 2 tells us that. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Salem, think of the word shalom, means peace. So he's king of righteousness by his name, and he reigns over the city of peace. He's the king of peace. A Jewish individual did not look for peace and righteousness in the same place. You looked for the king to provide you peace. That was his domain, the military, protection, expansion of the kingdom, peace. And you looked to the priest to provide you righteousness. Their domain was bringing humanity to God. Sacrifices, cleanliness, holiness, righteousness. Why didn't you look for those in the same place? Because the role was split. You couldn't be king and priest at the same time. Therefore, you could not provide peace and righteousness at the same time. But here in this Melchizedek, apparently you can. Number three, time and timelessness come together. Look at verse three. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Time and timelessness come together. The Genesis account gave us a concrete rooting in history for when this man appeared. Shortly after Abraham and Lot had split where they were going to live, there's a raid that takes place. Lot gets carried away after Abraham had come back from defeating the kings and getting back the plunder. There, in that concrete moment, this man enters. Yet we've got this Melchizedek who's described as being without father or mother, neither beginning of days nor end of life. He's this priest who remains forever. The point is not that Melchizedek is eternal. The statement here is not about his being. It's about his priesthood. A Levitical priest was a part of a lineage. Because of his bloodline, his father was a priest. He could be priest for 30 years, no longer. After him, his son would be priest. It just passed along by bloodline. Their family, the Levite family, had the role of ministering before the people before the Lord. The point here that the author is trying to draw is that Melchizedek is different than that. The section of Hebrews that this is situated in is all about how Christ is our high priest. That started in chapter 5. That he's greater than any Levitical priest, and now the author is going to show that he's also greater than this Melchizedekian priest. D.A. Carson says this uh, better than I possibly could. He says this, Melchizedek was not a priest because his father was a priest, nor was he a priest who had successors. By providing this familial background, the author is trying to communicate the unprecedented nature of Melchizedek's priesthood. Melchizedek is a priest of most high God by divine ordination. He enters into the Genesis story as if he has, as if he has, no mother, no father, no sons. This kind of priesthood stands in stark contrast with the priesthood of Israel, which was entirely based on Levitical familial descent. If you really, just as a side note, if you really want to nerd out about Melchizedek and Jesus and how all this goes together, uh, go out to YouTube, type in getting excited about Melchizedek, (laughs) 
And what it will pull up is an hour-long conference session by D.A. Carson where he does a deep dive on who Melchizedek is. If that's the kind of thing that would interest you, it's really good. I watched it twice. So um, it's an hour and one minute long. It's really interesting. The point is not that Melchizedek as a person is eternal, that he was never born, that he never died, that he's wandering around on the earth right now somewhere still functioning as a priest. The point is that his priesthood had no beginning and had no end. That's the point. As one other side note, that statement about uh, Melchizedek not having father or mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days, nor end of life, uh, has led some people to make the assertion that Melchizedek as a feature in the Old Testament is what is known as a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. Um, there are a few places in the Old Testament where people think that's what's happening. Another prominent one would be when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace and there's a fourth person. Many would say, that's Jesus. That's a Christophany. This is another place, Melchizedek, where some say, that's a Christophany. I'm not going to stand up here and speculate. You can go out and read people's opinions, pro or con, against that. The point is, time and timelessness come together. Last, blessing and honor. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Remember what happens in their interaction. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Hebrews doesn't tell us the specifics of that, but the Genesis 14 account does. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with bread, with wine, and with a spoken blessing or a prayer. He shows up, he gives him something to eat, something to drink, and then he speaks this prayer, this blessing over him. Catch the significance of that. Abraham is the one who is supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. And here comes this non-Jewish individual, a member of the nations, and what does he do to Abraham? Blesses. That turning on its head of what Jewish individuals would have expected would have caught a reader's attention, a Jewish reader's attention. How is that possible? What a turn of events. And in response, Abraham then honors Melchizedek. That's his response to the blessing. In fact, in Genesis 14, it goes straight from the end of Melchizedek's prayer right into, and Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Is an immediate response. This was an act that took place when one person recognized the superiority of another. Literally, the account says Abraham gave him the top of the heap, the best of the spoils. It's not that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tip or something, says, hey, thanks for the bread. It's that he gives him a payment, a payment that's meant in recognition of what Abraham owes to this priest king who represents God most high and has just blessed him. The surprise here is not that blessing and honor would go together. Actually, that is very routine. What is surprise is a surprise is who's doing which. The normal order of things would have been that Abraham, the one who was to be a blessing to all the nations, would bless Melchizedek, and Melchizedek would honor him. But it's backwards. The entire discussion is then wrapped in the reality of lesser and greater coming together, and the dynamic that exists between them. We'll talk more about the Levite portion of this next week, but look at verse 7. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. The inferior being Abraham, the superior being 
Melchizedek. We've been doing these little uh, inequality equations as we've gone through this series. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. The next one in that series would be that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That would have been something that the Jewish readers would have had to struggle to wrap their heads around. The author of Hebrews says, we can see this because Melchizedek blessed Abraham and the superior always blesses the inferior. We can see that because Abraham honored Melchizedek and the inferior would honor the superior. So Melchizedek must be greater. But remember, the point is to understand Jesus, not Melchizedek. The point is that Melchizedek is like Jesus, not vice versa. So the big point of the inequality or the equation is not to stop at Melchizedek being greater than Abraham. It's to notice that Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. That's the next step. Melchizedek is this Old Testament shadow of Jesus Christ who points to something greater than himself. Objects and shadows. Think about the way that works. It's August. You're about to go sit through four baseball games out at Fountain Bluff. It's 140 degrees with 113% humidity. (laughs) You're trying to figure out how you're just going to survive the afternoon of baseball games, and you think to yourself, I need to take an umbrella for some shade, or you've got one of those chairs that was designed for 140-degree days at baseball parks that's got, like, the canopy over the top. And so you take that with you and you sit for shade. No shadow without the object. No shade without the thing to provide it. Melchizedek is an Old Testament shadow. Yes, he points forward to Jesus, but you can't have the shadow without the object. His very existence is a reminder to us that Jesus has been casting that shadow forward for all of eternity. So, what do we do here? How is it that Melchizedek is like Jesus? That's the biggest part of the equation. We get the first images of that, not at the cross, not after Jesus has triumphantly walked out of the tomb. We don't have to wait for Jesus to return at the end of all things. We get the rumbles of this in Old Testament prophecy, and we see them come into striking existence at Jesus' birth. Consider it with me for just a moment. Let's advent together. Let's think about the coming of Jesus. Because in Christ, what we have is not only something superior to Melchizedek, we have someone who is the true and complete version of everything that Melchizedek points to. That means that he's king of kings and he's great high priest. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews. For we saw its star, for we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Jesus is not just the king of Jerusalem. He isn't even just the king of the Jews, though that's how the Magi identify him initially. He's the king of kings as 1 Timothy says, the king of kings, as he's identified in the book of Revelation. When Herod, the king of Judea, is fearful of this baby that the Magi are calling the king of the Jews, we immediately begin to see the reality that this Jesus is something greater than your standard run-of-the-mill first century king. 
He's the king of kings. But he's also the great high priest. That's what Hebrews has been at pains to show us. And we see it in Jesus' birth. Matthew 1.21. She will give birth to a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. A Levitical priest could help people mitigate the demands of their sin. This Jesus is going to do something of an entirely different order. He's going to save people not just from the demands or the repercussions of their sins, but from the sins themselves. This is something entirely different. This is why Hebrews has been calling Jesus the great high priest, because his priestly role outstrips that of the Old Testament priests by exponential degrees. It's not just that kinghood and priesthood happen to come together in Jesus like they did in Melchizedek. It's that in Christ we have the King of Kings and the great high priest. But also in Jesus we have the Prince of Peace and the King of Righteousness. Luke 2 verses 13 and 14. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. In the first public announcement of who Jesus is, notice what is attached to his name. Peace. That's what he's come to bring. Not the kind of peace that a military king could give, but a greater peace that extends far beyond political safety, a peace that is both internal and external, a peace with God that creates peace for humanity in the here and now. Jot that down because we're going to come back to it. The Prince of Peace brings a peace with God that creates peace here and now. But also, righteousness comes with him. Luke 1, 76 and 77, comes in the middle of John the Baptist's father, uh, giving this incredible prayer that's almost like worshipful about John the Baptist. And he says, And you, child, you, John the Baptist, will go and be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord, that's Jesus, to prepare his ways, to give people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's what the Lord is about to bring, righteousness. John the Baptist would go before the Lord, the one who would have the ability to forgive sins, to give righteousness. This is a totally different kind of priest, something greater even than what the Levitical high priest could offer. He could offer a sacrifice. Jesus is going to offer himself, a great high priest who not only satisfies the demands of our sins, but offers forgiveness for sins, which results in righteousness. Incidentally, that statement by Jesus about the ability to forgive sins when he pronounces that is the first thing that puts him into sharp contrast and conflict with the Pharisees. They are incensed by it. How dare you claim that you have the ability to forgive sins? Only God can do that. To which Jesus in his mind had to have thought, and here I am. You put the pieces together. You're right. Only God can do it. And I'm here in the flesh. The king of righteousness. In Jesus, the timeless one enters time. The account of Jesus' birth grounds the event in concrete human history. We read these verses uh, virtually every Christmas Eve service you would go to in any church across America. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. 
This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Concrete time. This happened in a set time, in a set place. And yet that concrete time comes, into that concrete time comes the one who is timeless. And that is God. Matthew 1.23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us, eternal God right here in the here and now. And then last, humanity is blessed and gives honor. Another way to say that would be that humanity is ultimately blessed and gives immediate honor. We've mentioned this multiple times already, but with Jesus comes the ultimate blessing, which is the forgiveness of our sin, the gift of his righteousness, the peacefulness of peace, and ultimately the ability to stand before the Lord. In fact, I want to just direct our thoughts to that for a moment. Think back to Genesis 14. Melchizedek blessed Abraham with bread and wine and a prayer. That's a shadow of something that would come in the future. We took communion today. How is it that our ultimate blessing from Christ was brought to us? He sat in a room with his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat. This is my blood poured out for you. Take it and drink. Bread and wine. Melchizedek offered the shadow of what Jesus would offer fully and completely. And then Melchizedek offers this prayer that Jesus, or that Abraham is the one blessed by most high God. And what has Hebrews said Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father right now? Interceding on our behalf. Praying. Ultimate blessing. Melchizedek offers Abraham a shadow of what Jesus would give. When we take communion, we are looking at that in front of our eyes. That is ultimate blessing. Bread and wine, body and blood given to us by our ever interceding priest. And what do we owe him? Honor. Matthew 2, verses 9 to 11. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. When we think about the Magi, we typically think about their gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Before they gave Jesus any gift, they gave him their worship. That's what came first. In recognition of this ultimate blesser. Again, who does it first? The nations. Melchizedek, this non-Jewish priest, offers a blessing to Abraham out on the road. The king of kings is born and he's laying there in a feeding trough in a manger or in a stable out behind a home. And these magi arrive, kings from the nations, and they bow down before him. 
and they give Jesus honor. Worship, that is their immediate response. Before they try to wow Jesus and Mary and Joseph with their gifts, they bow before Jesus in worship and honor. See how much greater Jesus is than Melchizedek. How much greater the object is than the shadow. Kinghood and priesthood, what a combination in Melchizedek. King of kings and great high priest. What a combination in Jesus. The king of peace and the king of righteousness. That's what his name means and that's the city that he rules over. That's kind of cool in Melchizedek. Prince of peace, king of righteousness. That's your eternal salvation in Jesus. A blessing of bread and water or bread and wine and a prayer. You've got the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus and an eternal intercessor at the right hand. Timeless one steps into time. The incarnation, holy God comes into a broken, messed up, sin-stained world in order to redeem it. All of those come together at Jesus' birth, at Bethlehem. And remember, the point is to understand Jesus, not to understand Melchizedek. The point is that Melchizedek is like Jesus, not that Jesus is like Melchizedek. The passage tells us about Jesus. The passage shows us just how much better Jesus is. So much better. And then consider what happens at Calvary. Two more unexpected things come together. The Magi arrive in Jerusalem. Herod's there. We've come to see the one who is king of the Jews. Herod flies into a rage. A mob eventually shouts for the crucifixion of Jesus. He's turned over to them. He's placed on a cross, and what do they hammer above his head? King of the Jews. And on the cross, you've got a smashing together of a king and a cross. It should have been that the king was the one who put people on the cross, not that the king went there himself. You've also got a coming together of holy God and sinful humanity. Ultimate blessing. Like Romeo and Juliet, Lady and the Tramp, Pizza and Pineapple, two unexpected things come together. They shouldn't go together, and yet there they are. And now in the believer, that means something for us meant something for the readers of Hebrews. It means something for us today. First, it means that Jesus is our king, not just our priest. We love the thought of the second. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Oh, we love the sound of that. We cling to that. We bristle a little bit at the thought of having a king. A Lord who could command how it is that we live. But we cannot have him as great high priest and not also have him as our king. Why? Because he is one and the same. He must be both. He commands both roles. Like Melchizedek did in his shadow, Jesus does ultimately imperfectly. And so to have him as one demands having him as the other. Having the benefits of him as our ever interceding priest means we joyfully obey the commands of our eternally reigning king. And so, in this Advent season, as you allow your heart to reflect upon the coming of the birth of Jesus Christ, 
Also allow your heart to examine itself. Is he Lord? Is he King? Or is it just that you hope and cherish the fact that he's priest and kind of want to disregard the fact that he would also be king? He's both. Always has been. Always will be. Number two, Jesus is our peace, not just our righteousness. We should flee to find peace the same place we flee to find righteousness. We know as those saved by grace that our righteousness comes from one place and one place alone. The King of righteousness, Jesus Christ, His blood covering us. We would do well to remember that our peace comes from the same one place and one place alone. Our Prince of Peace. Often our heart tries to find peace elsewhere. Rooted in the righteousness of Christ, we think that we need to look elsewhere for peace. Calm family relationships. Children that are doing well. Bank accounts that are comfortable and able to satisfy and keep us living in comfort. Career status. Societal status. A hundred other places. When in reality, none of those things can bear the weight of our need and our desire for peace. Only Jesus can. You allow your heart to look for peace somewhere else, it will often land you, it will always land you in seasons of turmoil. So often, the reason why the holiday season is difficult for us is because we think that with Christmas is going to come some magical sense of peace. Family's going to get together and no one's going to fight. The songs on the radio are just going to take me back to some like bygone era where everything was calmer. And then we get to like December 27th and we're trying to figure out why there's a subtle bitterness raging in our heart. It's because you looked for peace to a thing that could not provide it. Only the Prince of Peace can. In the same way that he's the only thing that can provide your righteousness, he's the only thing that can provide your peace. In this Advent season, as you allow your heart to reflect upon the coming of Jesus Christ, also allow your heart to stake all of your peace upon him in the same way that you stake your righteousness on him. Number three, Jesus alters our days, not just our eternity. Time and timelessness. If Jesus is your king, that means that the parameters of the kingdom alter not just the future, but right now. Far too often, conservative evangelicals can be guilty of thinking only about the impact of Jesus on the eternity of human souls. At the same time, far too often, more liberally-minded Christians, and I, those labels, conservative and liberal, those are theological, not political. Far too often, more liberally-minded Christians can be guilty of thinking only about the impact of Jesus' kingdom now and not in eternity. But we must see both, and there's no better place to see both than at the birth of Jesus Christ, when the timeless one entered time. Being brought into the king's kingdom has fully altered our eternity. Absolutely, and we should be ever grateful for it. We now have the ability to spend eternity in the presence of the Lord instead of eternity cast from the presence of the Lord. But it has also completely altered the way we are to think about our world now. Celebrating the birth of Jesus should give us that reminder every year that the king has come and with him he has brought his kingdom. And as those who await the fullness of that in eternity, we are to work for the realities of it in our earthly days. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not your will be done and I'll enjoy it one day when I'm dead and I'm with you. 
Your will be done on earth as I know for certain it will be done in heaven. This Advent season, as you let your heart reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ, allow it to be a reminder that as those who have been saved by grace, we are to work for kingdom realities in our everyday lives. Last, Jesus deserves our honor because of his great blessing. He deserves our worship in all things, at all times. He and he alone deserves our worship. Here at LCF, we talk about being devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered. To be gospel-centered means that the gospel is at the forefront of all we are, and if the gospel is in that spot, then worship naturally follows. If the gospel is ever before us, worship should be ever within us. Before we try, like the Magi, before we try to wow Jesus with our gifts, with our obedience, with all of our talents or our evangelistic skills or whatever the case might be, before we wow him with those gifts, we should bow before him in worship. In fact, it is from that posture of bowing that anything else should happen in our lives. He deserves our honor. He deserves our worship because of his ultimate blessing. point of the passage is about Jesus, not Melchizedek. The point of the passage is that we would learn to love and adore Jesus. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession right now. And that when we see Melchizedek, the author says, let it remind you that Jesus is so much greater. King of kings and great high priest. King of righteousness, prince of peace. Timeless one who entered time. Ultimate blessing deserving of immediate honor. Amen? Amen.